Hi, welcome to the Transition Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Goldie. Are you worried about becoming a civilian again? Have you just separated from defence or emergency services and want to minimise the stress during transition? Then this podcast is for you. We interview people just like you that are doing fine. No flyers here. These are everyday people like you who have just stepped out of uniform at some point. Our guests are candid about what they did and what worked for them. I'll bet there's some gold nuggets in there for you to model off and make your transition smoother than that might be. So let's cross live to the studio and hear today's guest. Well, hello everybody. Today we have Lisa with us. Hello, Lisa. Hi, thanks for having me, Travis. No workers. Um, so we did a little pre-interview last week. So we've got a bit of a plan together, don't we? Uh, yep, I'm trusting in your plan. <laughs> um, so a lot of our listeners are military, but you never served in the Army, Navy or Air Force. Did you? You're something new for us. I, I did not. My uncle was a reservist for many years. He was mm-hmm. a, a reservist captain. Uh, he's a doctor. Yep. And, um, and he saw active duty in some hot places over the yep. over his time. Uh, but that's as close as I got. And I actually had um, a school friend that was KIA uh, in Afghanistan as well. So mm. got, my, got my connections, but yep. uh, never never wore that particular uniform myself. But you I don't certainly, think I would have passed the physical, even in, uh, the, even in my prime. <laughs> you certainly did wear a uniform in service of our nation. So tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I um, was a paramedic here in Victoria with Ambulance Victoria in various forms for um, eight and a half years on road, uh, 11 years on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those not familiar with the paramedic path, uh, there's university and study and uh, it's a long road to enter. It's not uh, for everyone. No, it's not for everyone. And and at the time that I was uh, coming into the industry, the, the industry itself was going through a a shift. So um, <clears throat> up until two years prior to my um, enrolment at university, uh, you could only get employed by an ambulance service. Um, like so, study was post employment. So you got employed by the service, and then they paid you while you were a student, um, and that was essentially the only way you could do it. And that had evolved from the kind of really apprenticeship model of sort of the seventies and eighties. Um, so yeah, the the idea was that you got a job with one of the two services that we had at the time. We had two ambulance services in Victoria back then. That's how old I am. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I remember the the merger. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you had to get a job and then they'd pay you to study. And I tried that pathway and I missed out by three points on my exam. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then sort of a year or two later, a couple of real groundbreaking uh, individuals started a independent university course at a different university uh, which was Bachelor of Health Science, parentheses, paramedics. <clears throat> and that gave us um, a, a, a pre-employment option to study. So that just was like any other uni course where you, you know, have to achieve the score you need to get in and do prerequisites, that sort of thing, jump into that. And then at the end of that or partway through, you would start applying to the services to try and get a job. So a bit more of a 
you know, everybody else kind of pathway, uh, yep. you know, like law or accounting or whatever. Mm. Uh, and so I was the second year to go through that pathway and it still took me um, a couple of attempts to actually get employed by an ambulance service. And I started in the, uh, what was at the time was called RAV, R- Rural Ambulance Victoria, which serviced uh, rural and regional Victoria outside of Metro. Cool. So let's get into the meat and the bones of this. Everyone's keen to hear your answer to the infamous question. If you could tell a transitioning paramedic one sentence, what would you say? That's such a good question, Travis. (laughs) And this can apply equally to anyone that's transitioning from a career uh, into a totally new field. Yeah, I would say you are more than that role. Mm-hmm. There is more to you than that job that you have just finished doing. Yeah. Your and identity is not tied to your vocation. 100%. Yeah. I'd have a lot more to say, but that would be the first. <laughs> that would be my opener. We'll, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> so you had a period to prepare for your transition, what were the the best things you did have access to during that period? Whether you used them or not, what was available to you? Uh, I I mean, officially on paper, I had time to prepare to not refer to myself as a paramedic anymore. Um, But my cessation of... I guess active duties. That yep. that was pretty brutal. That was like a like an you know, that all came to a screaming halt pretty pretty quickly. It was taken out of my hands and determined for me that I was essentially not to attend any more rostered shifts. Thanks very much. You can go home. Um, that was pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, I guess I did have sort of. 18 months, I was on a um, temporary disability pension for two years. So I had that time to deal with all of that identity stuff and work out who I was if I wasn't going to be a paramedic anymore. Because it was pretty clear early on I wasn't – some people can get well in terms of mental health and return to the job, and I know people that have done that successfully and, like, all, all kudos to them. I was pretty sure that's not the way it was going to pan out for me. So I had to start figuring out, well, if I can't go back to the the one thing that I only ever wanted to do and the, the one thing I went to uni for and the one thing I've done for almost a decade, what the hell am I going to do? Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I suppose I had a bit of a buffer with the uh, the pension, although I'm sure your listeners are familiar that that's, that's not much. Yes, um what i i spent four months on the couch what i call what i call wallowing and reflecting and you know i was so great and i delivered this many kids and oh i did this and i saved lives and i sort of did that like i used to be great you know i used to be a contender (laughs) i did that i did that for a prize fighter well, that's right. I did that for about three or four months and, you know, reminisced about the great things I'd achieved in my life and whatnot. Um, and then I, that didn't, that wasn't going to work out. 
I was not going to stay on the couch watching Netflix. Um, I had a two-year-old son at the time. I was 34 years old when I was put on a disability pension and pretty quickly determined that this is not for me. This is, I'm not going to spend the next 34 years on this couch, you know, talking about who I used to be. Um, and so really, I guess what I, what I took in terms of opportunity was I had the time um, to rebuild, to reflect on myself, to determine what it was I wanted to keep of that past version of me and what I wanted to let go of. Um, it's funny. I hear people say, I just want to be who I, I just want to go back to who I was. Yeah. And I always say, I don't want to be who I was. That bitch developed PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be better. And medicine, um, was, the familial trade, if you will, everyone was in medicine in the family. So um, you looked at various other careers within within medicine. Yeah, I've always had this little voice in my head that's like, it's not too late. Um, <laughs> you can still be a, a doctor. Yeah, I could be a doctor. You can well, be Stephen Strange. When I was like six and then chemistry and I didn't get along in year 11 and that idea got dropped. Um but the person I'm actually the, the person I'm named after in my middle name, she actually started medicine. I think she was about 36 years old and had a couple of kids. And that's when she began uni to be a doctor and ended up being a, a professor and a lecturer at universities. And she actually had a massive influence um, over a, a lot of uh, doctors that are now practicing because they all sort of went through her classes um, and she started quite quite late you know she'd had her family and and all that so there's always this little voice it's like it's not too late she um, did it why can't I yeah why not um mostly because I don't like academics <laughs> not the people the yeah. study says so, so the three-year degree person yeah, yeah, look, I sort of, I got out with my bachelor's and I sort of, by the skin of my teeth, I think. Um, I love learning. I'm obsessed with learning and, and growth and I have a, a craving to kind of understand just enough of everything, like mm. a little bit of quantum physics and a little bit of linguistics and a little, I like, I just, I, I'm fascinated. I'm really good at a trivia night, can tell you that. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to, you know, submitting assessments and 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 referencing and all that sort of university level stuff that's that's not my happy place so uh, I, I think that ship has sailed well and truly um but I have found myself in a position where I'm lucky enough to still be fulfilling my um what would you call it my uh drive to contribute and my um focus on helping people that need my help mm. um, and just now doing it a, a different way to picking them up in an ambulance and patching them up and taking them to hospital. There is a consistent thread amongst the people that I bring on the show that they want to be of service. Um, they don't really mind whether that's flying a rescue helicopter or uh, shooting at the bad guys as a police officer, but they want to do something that's more that, yeah. that has a great I, impact on society. Or like being your neighbourhood's awesome lawnmower guy. You know, like I know people that have started small businesses post-service that, that you know, we're like see a need, fill a need kind of people. Mm. You know, so if we see that our community needs a, 
you know, we, we, there's like Warfighter Coffee. Mm. We've got, you know, guys that have created uh, coffee. We've got another veteran coffee place in Victoria. Uh, I think they're based in Croydon. Because um, Melbourne and coffee, that's a solid business idea. Um, you know, a friend of mine um, runs he's a veteran and he runs a security business in uh, Melbourne and Victoria with uh, imp- impeccable standards because he could see that in the security industry, there was a gap for really highly qualified, high level um, officers rather than, you know, uh, big brutes, shirt fillers, he calls yeah. them shirt fillers. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. They just stand there and fill a shirt at the front of the store. Mm. You know? um, so what he provides you know, in terms of um, security is is over and above the average because he's taken those skill sets that he's used, he's finding other guys that are post-military and giving them a really, uh, you know, a job that fulfills them in that way, like you said. Mm. The, the mistake that I fell into, and I don't know whether this is true for you, I went, all right, I know about helicopters and I know about guns, so that's what I need to do once I leave here. Um, did you find a parallel to that at all? I remember being on my um, my back deck uh, of my house. We lived in a in a rural bush area, and I remember being on the phone. And I can't remember who was on the phone too, but I do remember being uh, really upset. I was crying on this phone call, saying, "What what else can I do?" But what else can I do? No one, there's no other job where anyone's going to hire me to administer schedule eight drugs. Like my skill set is so niche. This is what I can do. I can, you know, potentially diagnose illness. I can stop bleeding. I can administer a list of drugs and medical interventions. If I'm not a paramedic, where else can I use those skills? I can't be a first aid person because that's not what I am. I'm more than that. And I can't be a doctor <clears throat> because I haven't done that. So I'm kind of stuck in between. Mm. What do I do? And I, it, was, it was very empowering when I realised I did have transferable skills because mm-hmm. I, I too was locked in that box. This is what I can do. Yep. It's going to hire me for that. Was that about the same time that you went, I'm not a retired paramedic, I'm not a former paramedic, I'm Lisa? Hmm. I think that came later. It, it's hard to let go mm. of the, the connection to tribe that comes from that Ooh, way of identifying That's my next question. Yourself. Oh, you got me. So that, that is the next question. How did you find leaving the tribe? The tribe. Uh, it, bro- it broke me. Mm. It broke my heart. Um, yeah, because it sounds it, like um, you were like some of the earlier military medical discharges where you are parachuted out, so to speak. You are grabbed with a bungee cord and an elastic shot into the next room um, and everyone's back over there doing everything. And it's not that they don't want to talk to you. They're so busy doing what they do. And you're over here going, um, I'm all by myself now. Yeah. I was on a roster where I worked with the same people every week. So there was probably three or four of us 
uh, at this particular branch that I was at. And we were on a, a roster that were trialing uh, the service that they ended up adopting. And so what it meant was rather than sort of rotating a bit more than the, <clears throat> the rest of the working community, we were with, you know, say Monday day shift, I knew I was with this person and Wednesday and Thursday night I was with this person. And I had worked with those particular individuals uh, who happen to all be women um, for I think at least six months, mm-hmm. sort of week in, week out, same roster, same people. And once it was determined that I was not, it was not appropriate for me to be at work anymore, um, I, I did not receive one phone call or one text message um, from any of those women uh, like ever, mm. <laughs> I used to say for the first three years, but it's not like they rang me up the three years, like ever. I've, I've not, essentially I've not spoken to any of them again, except one I bumped into at the local shopping center. Mm. So that, that was really hard. How did that it make you really, feel? I mean, you discarded, mm. you know? Um, and I think that for ambulance, there's there's a level of there's a factor in the sense of betrayal from ambulance when you know that the sole purpose of an ambulance service is to medically look after people that's why they exist that's the job and i'd contributed to you know almost a decade of my life to that mm. and then when i needed medical assistance, medical support, health care of some sort, crickets. Yeah. And so there's that another level of, um, you know, it was almost bewilderment. You know, I, co- I couldn't believe that I mattered so little to an organisation that I'd given so much. If I think about the personality types and the styles of people that um, nurses, doctors, it's because I worked in that in the military for a little bit, and medics, they all care. They're caring people. Um, so to go from people that you go, oh, the, these are really empathetic, really caring people, um, and obviously as a paramedic, there's sometimes you have to shut that down and cut through the bullshit too. Um, but I could see that betrayal. There's a level of vulnerability that you have to be comfortable with to be that empathetic. Um, there's a level of openness and rawness to be fully present in someone else's discomfort or pain or grief um, to be really good at your job. And when I started my career no one had explained to me the difference between empathy and compassion and I think that that's one thing that really needs to be taught to doctors and nurses and um and paramedics have you got your own definition for that empathy is sitting in someone else's sheet with them Mm mm-hmm Sympathy is standing there going, oh, that's awful for you. You Look <laughs> at you sitting in your shit. And compassion is 
that doesn't look good at all. How can I help you get out? And what I believed was, and, you know, perhaps it was modelled for me by you said, you know, I I come from a family of of medical people. I've got, you know, my father and my uncle are both doctors and my mum was involved in the medical industry. So maybe that was modelled to me. Maybe that was taught to me at uni, but I don't remember anyone sitting down and saying, whoa, hold up. It's okay. You don't actually have to share in their pain to be good at your job. You just need to hold space for it. Mm. No one ever had that conversation with me. And I attributed a a good proportion of my PTSD was collecting other people's grief and pain for, you know, a decade or so. So before my emergency career, I was in non-emergency ambulance as well, going in and out of nursing homes and taking Mm. people off to palliative care and stuff. So I think anything that forces you to confront mortality on a daily basis, uh, whether it's a military service or whether it's being surrounded for 12 hours a day by the dead and dying, um, that affects your psyche. Um, and and contribute. So part of what made me unwell was not knowing how to have boundaries, not knowing what was mine and what was theirs and taking on too much because I thought that that was a requirement of my job. Mm. And I ended up collecting other people's grief and sadness and loss and it turned into a big ball in my stomach because I also didn't have any skills in terms of discharging that or downloading it or Mm. getting it out. So I just collected it for a decade. Uh, That would absolutely lead to a mental health crisis. And the thing that um, often occurs to me is a soldier will deploy somewhere, they're in the war zone, they come home from that. For a paramedic that you're not necessarily getting shot at, but that stressful environment is every day and the the visceral images in within meters of you um, when you think about road trauma or any of that terrible stuff um it's every day it's every day and also you potentially getting assaulted you know verbally or physically i was physically assaulted uh, at least twice on like two significant times on the job yeah um the police asked it was new year's eve I'll tell you one quick story. It was New Year's <laughs> Eve. I think you'll appreciate it. And uh, there was a, a guy drunk too much and he was at the back of the pub in the car park and they, you know, everyone had packed up and gone home. So the police had arrived and we had arrived and we put him on the back on, in the stretcher and put him in the back and he was pretty close to fully unconscious. So I was talking to him as I always did, you know, I'm just going to put the blood pressure cuff around you and whatever. So I grabbed his arm to put the blood pressure cuff around he came to life as if resurrected himself and uh and just started attacking me and punching and kicking and um so my partner managed to grab one of his legs so I could get out I was sort of trapped where I was in the back of the ambulance the way it was set up was stuck um and I put my arms up to shield myself ended up with some pretty decent bruising on my arm and the police uh you know the the doors all flung open and we burst out when the police were still there and this police officer said to me, do you, do you, you know, is it okay if I spray him with capsicum spray? Is it okay if I spray him in the back of your, your truck? Because it'll have to be decontaminated or mm. whatever. And I said, you can shoot him for all I care. <laughs> 
I, I thought, you know what, mate? I was on your side. Mm. I was here to help you. I was on right your now. team. And you, you, you know, you threw that in my face. So, yeah. you know, whatever happens next is on you, dude. So they sprayed him and he ended up in the back of the divvy van. He slept at their place for the night instead of the hospital. So, yeah. okay. Good choice, bro. Good choice. Yeah, nicely done. Yeah. So, you know, there is that threat of, of physical you know, harm, physically being at risk, um, which is not something you kind of, well, certainly I didn't know I was signing up for. Um, you know, back in, oh, I probably shouldn't tell you what year. Yep, um, you that know, year, at least yep. It, <laughs> at least, I mean, it's talked about a lot more. We've since had ad campaigns and things for that, but I didn't know when I was, you know, under 25 that that was, I thought everybody would be happy to see the paramedics. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. the good guys, right? <laughs> Apparently not for everybody. Um, one of my biggest fears is that one day they're going to have to give paramedics a taser. Yeah, they, it's been discussed for years, and um, most most of us ambos push back against it. That's not we don't. I mean, we've had crews um, where we've had one paramedic and one police officer on a vehicle, and they respond. Wow. Um, so there's certain places that's been trialed, mm. um, but and now they have um, body cameras. Um, paramedics are, are a lot of them are carrying body cameras. So I mean that's. That's scary. That's not that's not what you signed up for. There's a reason mm. we became paramedics and not police officers. Um to to your point of you know working within a community that you kind of can't go home from because you work there. Um I think that's part of why um police officers and paramedics and fireys and SES and tow truck drivers have difficulty in some of the aspects of the medical model advice of, you know, avoid your triggers, try and stay away from, you know, mm. areas that sort of set you off. By the way, I hate the word triggers. Um, and, okay, if I, you know, not to diminish um, active service overseas at all, mm. but. Um, it's, a, it's a different model. You can't treat the flu differently for different people in different environments. You know, if you've, if you've attended a cardiac arrest um, or some sort of, uh, you know, anything to do with kids is, is of course, you know, sort of the worst thing we can all imagine, you know, some sort of awful job at the local shopping center where you also, you know, finish your shift and go and buy groceries at the end of the day, where do you shop? You know, like if that's a place where where things come back to you, uh, and you know induces flashbacks or whatever else, um, but that's where you got to get your bread and milk. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can't particularly in a small community. So I was in regional Victoria for five years. Um, there's fewer options. You can't just like, oh, I just won't take that road. I'll go around, you know, and I'm probably, you know, I'm sure we both know people that go the long way and there's an extra half an hour to their trip because they can't go past that tree or that intersection or, mm. you know. Um, and it can I, be I just getting in a car. It's, yeah. it's not the road you're driving down. It's I'm in a car, there's threat. When do I have to pull up and help somebody else that's had a crash? Not that I'm on duty. But if I see a crash, am I, am I duty bound? Am I emotionally bound to help? Yeah. How do I yeah. deal with driving past it? That's it. And, and that in itself, without, 
you know, what's the option is to be crippled in your house and not leave and become a hermit and, you know, order everything on eBay. (laughs) That's, and, and to me, you know, that was one of the options given to me. And I was like, well, that's, that's not a life. I have to learn how to be able to go up and be in the world. One of my worst ever panic attacks was it dropping my daughter off to meet her friends at the cinema at a large shopping center. And I don't know specifically what it was other than just complete overwhelm of, of noise and people. And, Mm. um, you know, obviously my nervous system didn't feel safe and I ended up crumpled on the floor, you know, in a ball hysterical trying to merge into the wall or the floor. Um, and, uh, and she was, she was so embarrassed and she was so upset and I felt terrible that I had made a scene and it was about me. And, mm. you know, I think she was sort of 14 at the time, you know, she's at a time where like, it's really important to kind of be cool. Yeah. And there's mum having a complete hissy fit on the ground, mm. you know, and everyone's standing around and, oh, it was, um, and I insisted on spending the rest of the afternoon there. I wouldn't go home. My husband said, we can go home. We'll just drop her off and I'll come back. I was like, no, we are, we're here. I'm together. I've got this. And we spent, you know, two hours walking around while she was at at her, her movie. And I think it was really important for me to stick that out. I had to prove to myself that I could do it. And I didn't have to run away as terrifying as the entire afternoon was. Was that your own form of exposure therapy? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm pretty stubborn, Trav. Like, have been my whole life. I'm a bit of a hardhead. <laughs> um, so we've talked about some stuff that was not easy to do. What was easy to do when you rejoined society eventually? Because mm. you're doing okay now. Yeah, I'm great now. Um, I think for me redefining my sense of purpose was really crucial. Like we spoke about, you know, that that desire to contribute and to be of service. I think being able to work out how to channel that in a new direction um, and seeing that there was a pathway um, in that. And that, that, and that is what you do professionally now with the business that you run. Yeah. So that is um, working with uh, people with trauma and uh, helping them heal in a way that perhaps they haven't necessarily tried before. So often I will get people calling me saying, I've tried everything. And I go, well, we've never spoken before. So you haven't tried everything. tell me what you've tried and I get the shopping list. You know, I've done the psychologist and the medication and the psychiatrist and the CBT and the DBT and the, all the ECT. acronyms and names and the yeah, EMDR and I've tried all of it. And you We know, need to I put a list have... of all those at the end of the episode so people are like, what are all these TLAs? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what are all these? We need an acronym collection dictionary. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, and they say, oh, I've tried all that or I've been to the psychologist for five years or, you know, but my judgment frame, my assessment of 
how is this going is functionality. You know, if you, if you get a diagnosis of something like anxiety and you can go to work and you can be an active member of your family and you can contribute to society and you have anxiety, then where's the problem, right? It doesn't, it's not affecting your functionality. You can sleep, you can eat properly, you exercise, you manage it. Maybe, or maybe not you take medication, but you can function to a level that you're happy with. So be it, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Um, whereas if people come to me and say, well, I have this, you know, label or diagnosis or whatever someone's told me, this is the name for what I'm experiencing. Um, and it's causing these problems. I can't work and I can't drive and I can't this and I, you know, okay, well then your functionality is poor. That's an issue. That's what we need to, to have a look at. So that's always the, the gauge for me rather than a co- the collection of labels or diagnosis, you know, people call me, uh, you know, do you work with depression? Do you work with PTSD? I'm like, no, I work with human beings. Mm. Some of them are currently experiencing symptoms of yes. this group of things, but you know, I don't work with diagnoses. I work with people. Um, so did you have an epiphany? Um, at some point you went from sitting on the couch saying, woe is me to now helping other people. There must've been a decisive point where you want, hang on a minute. Um, there's something very wrong here that I can change. I've been thinking about this for, um, 10 years. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> a long, long time. And if I could bottle whatever it was that got me off the couch, I'd be a millionaire. Mm. You know, because that's the thing that would stop an alcoholic drinking. That's the thing that would, you know, get me to the gym, <laughs> you know, if mm. I could find it again. Mm. Um, I, I don't know what led to the decision but the decision I made on the couch was really, this is not enough. This is not my life. I don't want this to be my life. Um, So people are typically either moving away from motivated or moving towards motivated. And often we need a good moving away from to at least get us started, even if we don't know what we're moving towards. So certainly that was the case for me in that, sitting on that couch, doing the woe is me in capitals, like I was really doing it. Um, I, I really got sick of myself. I just got sick of my own bullshit, really. I don't want to do this. This is not okay. This is not enough for me. And I, my then two-year-old, tomorrow 10-year-old, um, was a real driving force because I was like a cicada shell of a person on the couch. You know, when they leave and then the shell is left hanging on the tree and it, it kind of looks like the thing that it was, but it, it, there's not, it's not really there. And that's what I was. There was a shell of mum on the couch. That was phoning it, it in. Pardon? That was phoning it in. Yeah, 100%. And my... My husband ran the ship. I don't know how he kept our family together. He's some sort of magician. And my kids would sort of, you know, kiss me in the morning. Bye, mum. Oh, bye. Have a good day at school. And they'd sort of go. And But I wasn't present. I wasn't there. I was living in the past. 
Um, and I just reached a point where I was like, I, can't, I just, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this for them. And I can't keep doing this for me. And I refuse to, and I understand that sometimes when people get to that point, they might be contemplating taking themselves out of the equation. And I certainly had um, intrusive thoughts that were related to self-harm, but I've, I, I rarely, I did, but I rarely had intention. Um, so part of my PTSD was visualising myself driving into a tree over and over again. It was very clear in my mind. Mm. But I also at the same time 100% knew that I would never do that to my kids. I would never do that. Yeah. Um, a, so, a thought does not equal reality. And when you're thinking about, I just want the pain to end, that is where the thought comes from. It's not because you don't want to live. Almost every person that I have ever spoken to that tells me in a, in a therapeutic sense, that tells me that they are suicidal is because they will, they'll, start, they'll enter with that. I, I have suicidal thoughts. Okay, tell me about those. If you imagine that they are at the centre of, of a circle, like a dartboard, and everything else around them, as far as they're concerned, how much can I swear, Travis? Go nuts. All the, all the way? Yeah, go nuts. <laughs> as no, far as they're concerned, the outside, everything in their life is a clusterfuck right? Their career, their family, their every avenue that they look out from their point of view, which we need to accept is warped. As far as they're concerned, they're failing at all those things, right? And so the simplest solution as far as they're concerned is to take themselves out of the equation and therefore relieve the world of the burden of their existence, right? Now we need to understand this, this is warped thinking. They're coming, they're looking through a warped lens. It's it's incorrect logic. So when we discuss, okay, I appreciate that that's where you're at right now. If, if you were engaged with your family and you had good relationships and good communication skills there, and you had some sort of direction or purpose to do with your life path and your career, and you were getting your physical health back and you were eating well and moving more and all those sorts of things and this and this and this, would you still be suicidal? Oh, no, because then life would be great. Okay, cool. So are you in fact suicidal or are you motivated to change the circumstances that surround your life? Ah, okay, great. All right, so good news. You're not suicidal. Great. So that's helpful. Let's tick that. You know, I think it's important to shed those labels if they don't serve you, because once you're sort of branded with that, you carry it around. So understanding that that sense of, I can't do this anymore. It's the, this that you need to change, not the anymore. Right. So if you can't do this anymore, do something else and make the changes in those circumstances around. So get up and go for a walk, control what you can control. We can't control a lot in our world. We can control our thoughts, our words, our actions. That's pretty much it, right? You can't control those things in other people. You can influence and model, but you can't control them in other people. 
You have 100% control over your thoughts, your words, your actions. And your actions include what are you putting in your face? (laughs) How much are you moving? Right? Yep. Yeah? So when you really pull people down and, and, you know, what have you got control over? Because there is a sense of loss of agency with all of this. You know, you've had the army or, or military service or emergency service tell you what to wear, tell you when to turn up, tell you what to do, give you a set of protocols or guidelines to work to. And then you that's all gone now. And so having your, you need to reclaim that agency. You need to reclaim that control over your own life as part of that transition is going, right, I'm actually in charge. And, and that's kind of, for a lot of us, an unlearning yep. because that got, that got taught out of us in our training. We are drilled to go, if this happens, do this thing. There might be a protocol, a manual, whatever you want to call it, but you know that when X happens, you need to do Y. And when yep. all of a sudden Y happens and you don't know what to do, that's very confronting. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that redefinition of self is developing in some way your own standing orders, right? If I feel like this, then I need to do this. Okay, cool. You know what? Write it down, stick it on the fridge. Whatever helps you know that if I feel like this, if I can, I'm like, here's three things I can do. One, go have a shower. Two, go for a walk. Three, you know, if sleeping's not part of your problem, maybe have a nap right? Because a lot of us oversleep to escape life, right? Mm. Um, you know, so work out for, for each individual. When I feel like this, what is, what's something I can do? And ideally it's, it's an action taking, right? Sitting on the couch watching Netflix as enjoyable as it is in the short term is not action taking. One of the things I felt like is I went, I'm now just a time traveler. I just have to do things to fill my day to get to the next day and that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm bound to. I am a passive member of society that just watches society happen from the outside and I'm just travelling along on this conveyor belt. Yeah. It's not a... There's no vitality in that. It's not a passionate way to live. I, I spent a good period of time driving my kids to school, dropping them off, coming home and going back to bed, staying in bed, either reading or social mediaing or whatever, pretty much until it was time to go and pick them up with maybe mm. a brief interlude for a bad food choice mm-hmm. and then go and pick them up. And then I would, all the energy that I could muster was to do the evening stuff, school pickup, prepare dinner, have you done your homework, right, before Mm. bedtime for them. And then I'd flake out on the couch, you know, and that that was my day over and over and over and over again. Weekends used to scare me Mm. because I was like, oh, they're here Mm. a lot. (laughs) I have to be present. Yeah, and I think that's why... You know, if I was still in that state, this current situation, you know, for a lot of people in and out of lockdown, uh, it's really difficult. Paramedics gave you some skills that we talked about the other day 
that have served you surprisingly well. You learnt to do some things and you now use them every day. What are they? I'm using them right now. <laughs> it's very ninja. Public speaking. Public speaking. So when I was trying to work out what are my transferable skills and what did I learn doing that for, you know, 10 years or so that regular most people can't do, um, it, you know, it's a pretty well-known fact that most people have a fear of public speaking. I think it's um, the number two fear on earth. Number two after death <laughs> is public speaking. Yeah. Well, it turns out that for me, walking into other people's homes and workplaces uh, day in, day out, you know, six to eight times a day over and over again for years and years and needing to take control of the situation and, and delegate tasks and, you know, you go and get her medication and you mm. grab some nighties and we're going to do this and taking control of that situation. Um, and you probably did that 10,000 occasions. Oh, probably more. I don't and, know. And what, other, what other jobs when you practice something 10,000 times are you not a master of it? You know, that scene control stuff that you learn through that and, you know, there are similar if not identical um, skill sets in, in military roles where you've, you've got to make decisions really quickly uh, and, and, and threat assess and prioritise and triage, um, you know, either, you know, it's not strictly a, a, a medical skill. Um, what that gave me was uh, I became impervious to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just standing up the front of the room and talking. I'm like bulletproof. Um, you know, I, I get nervous because I want to do a good job. Mm. Um, but it's certainly not a, a fear that stops me doing it. So that has lended itself. I guess I've redirected that scene control skill set into public speaking and being able to um train at the front of a room so i train other uh, coaches and practitioners uh, and all sorts of people in neurolinguistic programming as part of my business um i run online courses i do heaps of podcast interviews um you know workshops and that's a very comfortable space for me to be in um which is very much a result of just going in and out of other people's houses and taking charge. Mm -hmm. um, so there are definitely aspects to things that I, I mean, uh, you learn to talk to anybody in the back of an ambulance, you know, <laughs> I've, I think I've barracks for every AFL football team in my <laughs> last, uh, you know, 15 oh, years. I barrack for them too. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I go for them as well, right? Because I actually don't follow football teams. So I don't care, you mm. know. So whatever works at the time. I'm not into. Football. What are you like? Oh, yeah. No, no. I've seen that, you know. Um, and you find ways to make people comfortable. Mm. Um, and now, as a coach, most of the feedback I get, um, from from my clients or people that jump on a call with me, um. I have this ability to make people feel very comfortable very quickly, which is great because it facilitates that vulnerability and that opening up and raw honesty that uh, I believe is a real shortcut 
to healing. Um, and there's lots of people that will spend a long time in psychologist's office and whatnot because they're holding back and they don't really like their therapist. And they're like, oh, yeah, but I don't know anything about them, but I'm supposed to go in there and spill my guts. Mm. Um, you know, so it they spend a lot of sessions week after week, you know, your, your 50 minutes, um, just working towards feeling comfortable to tell those stories or to share the the pain or the difficulty or the challenge. Mm. Um, whereas I find that we do that quite quickly. My clients and I do that quite quickly. We yep. get on a call, we get on like a house on fire and they're like, Oh, and they just, you know, tell me their story and spill their, spill their stuff. Um, and also, uh, I only require that once essentially. Uh, yep. so the way that I work, you know, we don't do that every week. We don't keep talking about the tell worst things about of your, your life. father. Yes, lay down on the couch. Yes. Um, so I do one history taking session, which is the big sort of, you know, vomit, word vomit. And I take heaps of notes. And then from the next session on, it's solution based. We're working on, on healing and moving forward. It's not about sitting in that week after week. Um, and that's why people seem to progress a lot quicker, one of the reasons. So listening to you now, I would think that some people would go, she's perfect, she's got it right. Do you still struggle? Um, I have what I consider to be a, a regular mum level of anxiety around my kids. I worry about their safety. That's um, called being a mum. That's called being a mum. Yeah, well, that's it. And I think it's important to recognise that if you have been diagnosed with a, an anxiety disorder, that doesn't, you know, every time you get nervous or anxious or worry about your kids or yourself or your safety or whatever, um, that's not the disorder. That's being a human being. And there's there's needs to be allowance for that. Mm. Um, you know, I had a client that was was diagnosed with anxiety disorder, and every time he got apprehensive, um, it was his disorder playing up. I'm like, nah, dude, like you're just trying to stay alive. Like that's entirely reasonable. Um, entirely reasonable uh, assessment of the situation. You should be nervous. So I think uh, I no longer have. Um, things like uh, nightmares or flashbacks. My number one um, symptom was anger. I was very angry all the time at everybody um, and had real issues with that. And I found that really confronting. Um, but I, I don't, I let that go. Um, so now on occasion, I, I, get, I get cranky mum. And I'll have a bit of a, a blast because there's something specific, uh, but it's not that seething, uh, you know, keeping a, a lid on a boiling pot kind of rage that I was dealing with back then. Um, so, yeah, for all intents and purposes, according to the DSM-5, I no longer tick the boxes of PTSD or anxiety and depression, and I've been medication-free since November 2015. Good eye. Um if you could put a uniform back on tomorrow, if somebody magically waved a wand and said, hey, we need you tomorrow, we're short a shift, would you put it back on? 
magic hypothetical of you. I know. <laughs> um, I would not, for very practical and logistical reasons, I would not be a paramedic again. Um, it's a bit like asking a um a recovering alcoholic, you know, six years down the line, do you, you want to get a job as a bartender? <laughs> um, you know, part of my um part of my wellness strategy is to not put myself in those roles anymore. And you know, I'm I'm really well. I'm not perfect in any form, but I'm really well. And part of that is that I don't have to deal with the idea of managing a pediatric death. Yep. Right. And there's no guarantee that on day one, job one, that's not what I'm getting. So it's just not putting myself in a situation uh, where I'm at risk is part of my strategy to stay well. The question that I normally ask next um, is very veteran centric, but I have a paramedic version. And the question is, if World War Three started tomorrow, would that change your decision? So imagine you live near a train line and there's a massive train crash and a huge mass casualty event. Would you run over and help? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a much easier question to answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I still stop at accidents, slow down, make sure everybody's out of the... Yeah, everyone's walking around. Okay, we can drive off, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I still do that. And I think that, that I will always... I will always be that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's with a very different intention than it used to be. So I'm going to change gears. We're going to go fifth gear now. We've been in third and fourth for a bit. Um, so a lot of people change from um, those service careers into business and have trouble adjusting to selling themselves and whatnot. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Yeah, 100%. I do. And how do you frame um, that? Say that again? How do you frame that for yourself? For at least the first five years, I really struggled with sales. Coming from a service-orientated background, um, I think it was confusing to me to work out how to be of service and not be a servant um, and I've relatively recently reframed my whole thinking around sales. Um, I now don't have sales conversations in my business. I have value conversations and I um, offer opportunities for solutions. Mm-hmm. So, um, And that's no know, different to being in the medical field. You see, an illness and you offer a treatment. It's um yeah, it's 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 pretty similar. I hadn't thought about it like that. You know, we can we can do this or we can do this. So, you know, my my sales in inverted commas conversations are essentially where are you now? Where do you want to be? How can you get there without me? What does that look like? Which is usually the path they've already been on. Mm. And you know, the prescription, which is, well, if we were to work together, this is kind of how it would look and this is what it would look like, up to you. You've, mm. you know, you've got choice. You've got agency over your life. If you want to keep walking the path you've been on 
and go at the pace that you're going on and get the result that you've been getting, that is your choice. That's an option that you've got. And I offer an alternative, simple as that, you know. In terms of being in a business, you almost cut yourself short because you don't build long-term clients. You don't build a list and remarket to them, um, which is the model of a lot of entrepreneurial styles is build the list and sell and, and sell the next thing. Yeah. Um, so does that create conflict inside you? I have a paramedic business model. <laughs> <laughs> See the thing, help the thing, model. drive away. Which is get in, get sort of get out, right? So paramedics really, you know, part of what I loved about it is that I'm not a nurse. I'm not going to see you when I come into work tomorrow morning because you're still on my ward. Um, I We want to fix you up and then... I'm going to parachute in. You're going to go and you're going to not need me anymore. Like my job is to make myself redundant. Ultimately, I want to get my clients to a point where they're comfortable going, okay, thanks, Lisa, bye, mm. right? Within a, rel- usually about a three-month period. So I typically work with people for about three months. I don't want or need codependence. I, um, I'm very variety driven myself. So I like things that, uh, change. I'm constantly moving the furniture in my house and making my husband crazy. Um, because I, I need that variety. So if I was to work with somebody for six months or 12 months, I would get bored. So, you know, it's best for me and best for them. If we just get in and get this stuff sorted, there's no bullshit. I don't have time for that. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just, Fix up what needs to be fixed up using the tools and skill sets that I have um, and all referrals, you know, so I'm happy to work as part of a, a treatment team and then see you later. Like the goal is for you to not need me. Yeah. Um, as a business owner, um, yeah, all the, it's I guess not, all it's the, not traditional, but that the becomes, marketing advice, yeah. Uh, yeah, really goes against solving your clients' problems, which is, you know, kind of weird to me. Um, and I guess it's it's the difference between, I mean, that's part of what kind of frustrates me about um, some of the, the people that work within the medical model. You know, it serves them for you to come back every week for eight years because you pay them whatever, you know, 250 mm. bucks a pop. Um, so there is... Uh, you know, investment in keeping you not ready to leave the nest, right? They need that to stay in business. Um, I come from a viewpoint of abundance. I'm pretty sure that as long as the military is doing what they're doing and the emergency services are doing what they're doing and we have a massive issue with family violence in this country and we have issues around the way women are treated and we have an epidemic of young people with anxiety. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to run out of clients mm. and pay, it's going to dry up. Everyone's like, nah, so Lisa, I'm all fixed. No, done. I've, you know, I've healed everybody. Mm. I'm pretty sure that if I can fulfill a three month turnaround and continually open up spaces for people to come through and work with me, there will still be people at the door. And there's no um, better so advertising than a happy client. Pardon? There's no better and advertising than a happy client. You can't pay for that. You can't pay for having people walk out and go, oh, my God, you got to go see Lisa, right? That's like 
you know, it's the best. And that's what I'm there for. So when I first started this, I actually had people, people who would call themselves friends at the time accused me of profiting off the illness of others because I was not a charity. I'm not a not-for-profit. I'm a business and I charge for my knowledge and expertise and experience and, you know, shortcutting the process for people. Mm. So it doesn't take them the 18 months. It took me or longer. But on the same Um, hand, people are not compelled to come to you. They're making a choice when they come to you. Well, actually, I profit off the healing of others, right? Because I don't, my job is not to keep you sick. So if anyone's profiting off the misery of others, I don't know, maybe have a look at the labels on the things from the pharmacy, right? See who's profiting, right? I profit, I thrive, and I, it brings me joy to see my clients moving forward with their life. Mm-hmm. Like that's what makes me happy. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and I, I have stopped apologizing for running a business around that. Mm. And I recognize that there's value in my life experience and the way that I've condensed it and the way that I've filtered it through, you know, my mindset. And then I can deliver that in a very compact, concise, step-by-step process rather than each individual having to just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks in terms of what works for them Mm. in terms of healing and recovery. Um, I don't think I'm, or or my process is a magic pill. Um, I very much believe that wellness is a puzzle, not a pill. And, you know, it's, it is about body, mind, and soul. It is about your food. It is about your exercise. It is about your quiet space. So meditation or stillness or something. It is about connection to a higher self. It is about yoga and kale and, you know, whatever it is for you that Mm. is the collection of things that works for you in terms of your own recovery. Um, But from what I've seen, and it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, having me in the mix for people pushes them along much faster in that process. Yeah. Um, have you created any other income streams uh, other than the business that you have now? I toyed with network marketing yeah. um, back when I was sort of looking for something. Um, and it really came back to that whole, you know, icky sales thing. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't make that work for me in a way that felt authentic and had the level of integrity that I was comfortable with. Um, I did meet some amazing people through that. And I feel like it was absolutely a stepping stone on the path to where I am now. And I, I needed to go through that. Um, um, I'm currently developing, I'm rejigging my business model. So there's going to be multiple income streams built into that. Um, there's soon to be merchandise and, uh, and a, um, a, a video series and podcast series. And so within what I'm currently creating, which is in the works, um, there are multiple, multiple income streams. I think it's important um, I don't think anyone struggling with transition right now needs to like multiple income streams is a step 25 conversation. Yep. Like just work on what you need to work on right now. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of business owners, 
um, looking at ways that you can minimize the amount of your time you're swapping for money is really important. So moving to a one-to-many model. So I'm creating a group coaching online program, things like that. I think for my own sustainability to be able to continue what I'm doing for the next, you know, 30, 40 years, it can't only be a one-to-one business model. Um, So having refined what it is that I do and my process and being really clear about how I work with people, Mm -hmm. I'm now leveling up to how can I then um, reach more people and also minimize um, my hours because, you know, for those veterans that are running a service-based business or even a product-based business, you burning out um, and, and, you know, driving yourself into the ground doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help your family. It doesn't help your customers or your clients. So we need to work out how can you do that from a business sense in a way that allows for health and happiness. I mean, we, we self-employ, we become entrepreneurs for our own freedom to, you know, run our own ship. So don't, don't steer your ship into the iceberg, you know, yeah. like make sure that whatever you're creating, you're creating just in a way that supports you rather than just gives yourself a really hard job and you're working 18 hours a day. Mm. One of the things I did, um, this podcast is new. It's the second podcast I've got. The other one is so niche that it can't even be defined as a niche. It's that narrow. There's like <laughs> 150 people in Australia that do it. But that taught me a lot. And what I'm getting now is people are like, oh, you're really good at podcasting. You should run a course. Um, so I'm exploring running that as a passive income stream where I can film some videos and write some web pages. Um, and everyone has something like that in their life that they're good at. Absolutely. That could be just a website that people go to. They don't need to buy your time. Yeah, 100%. And I think turning service so like a service like a podcast or what i do like into a product is a really clever way to create another income stream um and we live in a time now that if you can get over any mindset you know beliefs that you have around the tech you know, and then the technology and your ability, I don't know how to build a website and I don't know how to do, you know, all that sort of stuff. If you can shift past that, so either work on it yourself or get a mentor. And I I coach, I mentor other coaches in business as well. Um, So I've been having a lot of these conversations lately, like how do we maximize this? Um, The technology is out there and it's easier than it's ever been. So there's, there's ready built platforms that you literally upload your content to and they, they have all the bits and pieces built into it. You don't necessarily have to learn five different pieces of software or apps, um, you know, to send out your emails or to receive payment or whatever, you know, there used to be four or five things that you would have to master. Whereas now there's, there's these all in one platforms Mm. where you just load up your stuff, you've put in your settings and it's, and it's easy. It's ready to go. So, you know, with everything that's a new skill set, there's a learning curve, right? But it's, it's not insurmountable. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think you should absolutely do that. And if you 
want help with that, reach out. I can't sell myself. It'd be super fun. (laughs) It would. Um, So the last thing I want to touch on is um, you don't have external genitalia and that changes things for people. So have you got any advice for specifically females um, with PTSD or transitioning that is different to what you would tell the dudes? Yeah. Yes, well spotted, especially considering I'm fully clothed. <laughs> For all the listeners. Sorry, I, I assumed your gender. Is, is assumed <laughs> that I have internal reproductive organs. Well, um, you did say you've had babies, so I can draw some <laughs> conclusions from that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I did do that. Mm. Um, I think. I mean, there's a huge amount of overlap. All the stuff we've spoken about, like loss of tribe and identity and and all that sort of stuff is, you know, irrelevant to gender. Um, It crosses that boundary. I think one of the things that was very, very confronting for me as a female was the rage, the anger. Uh, I broke bones in this hand, in my right hand, punching the pantry one time. I kicked a hole in the wall in the house we were living in. Um, and and that, to know that that lived within me, frightened the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was kind of, you know, I'd been socially conditioned like everybody else to think, well, when women are upset, they cry. And when men are upset, they hit things. And so, and scream and yell. And I was screaming and yelling and crying and hitting things, Uh, you know, but I wasn't just sobbing on the shower floor when I was upset. I was really, really ragey. And to be that angry, like I'm talking like Hulk style anger. Um, And usually to the people I cared about the most, the people that copped it the most were my kids and my husband, you know. And so dealing with that as a woman was really hard because there was self-stigma around anger, being angry, um, when it was a nervous system response, you know, it was yeah. part, of, part of a mental health challenge. Um, but I kind of feel like I would have been more comfortable if I'd just been crying all the time. Like that's allowed as a chick. So I think it's... It's okay for women to be angry. You are justified in that. It is a reasonable um, display or, uh, you know, way of getting out that emotion. It's not just for guys. Uh, Obviously, safety is number one of yourselves and and others. Um, But women are allowed to get angry too. And I, I think I think we've probably seen that in the last twelve months that women are real angry, um, and that challenged. You know, I had to balance my role as a mother, which is like traditionally caring and nurturing and loving and soft, with this rage-filled, Hulk-inspired beast that. Mm was running around the house yelling at the kids for leaving a the butter knife on the bench instead of putting it in the sink. Yeah. And that dealing with that that two sides of me was very difficult. Um so if anyone's dealing with that, just take a minute and forgive yourself because you're doing the best you can. 
and examine what what is real what what do you believe about what's allowed and how you're allowed to express yourself mm-hmm. and what have you taken on from society and movies and your parents and whatever about what's appropriate and maybe put down some of those belief systems about how you should be behaving that are not helping you, that are just making you feel filled with shame because you're not supposed to be like that. Mm. Um, And put that down and just work on accepting yourself and forgiving yourself for who you are right now and recognize that you're doing, you're doing the best you can with what you've got and what you need is more resources and start working on where, where, where can you find those, those resources? Cool. So we're at that time of the show now where you hear that little music in the background. We're near the end. This makes people cry. I'll miss you. Uh, you can always ring me again. It's okay. okay cool. we, we can like Zoom. Um, but yeah, thanks for being on um, and thanks for giving that different perspective because I don't want this show to just be about the army. Um, I want anyone out there that is making a transition from one tribe to another uh, to come on board. Um, so thank you. Um, thank for, you. For those of you at home, if you want to reach out to Lisa, we're going to put some of the details in the show notes. You might be able to get something from her on a professional level. Um, and, yeah, I don't get a kickback from that. I probably should. But uh, we'll talk about affiliate marketing somewhere else. Um, what I do want people to do, if you want to support the show, tell a friend. Find somebody, share it with them. Um If you're a psychologist, if you're a client, I don't care who you are, share it with somebody. And if you really, really want to support me, I've got Patreon. You can go there. Bye, everyone.